started uh, with a word of prayer, if that's okay with you. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we give you praise for all that you do, you've done, you are doing, and will do in our lives. We would ask your blessings this morning on us as we interact and engage with the subject matter. Grant that those who are here as participants will be able to speak as we speak, and those who are here to, to participate in the learning experience and will gain the things that you have for them. Bless us as we go through this, this discussion and these series of stories. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. This morning we are we're dealing with Live to Tell the Story, which is the title of our daughter's album, uh, receiving beauty from for your for your ashes. And this will go in three parts. Um, I will speak first, my, my bride will speak second, and our daughter uh, Marie will, will come and tell uh, her story. My story um, begins uh, in two parts. Um, part one is I was born in a family um, uh, where I was the third of seven children. Uh, my dad was really at heart a good man, but he was a man that had a number of troubles. He was first of all uh, affected by post-traumatic stress disorder from World War II, mm. and he was affected by post-traumatic slave syndrome from the racism and the Jim Crow system that he grew up in in the 1920s. Those things converged on him, and as a result of that, our experience in growing up, my mother was a victim of intimate partner violence, and we were victims of violent child abuse. Uh, during that uh, time, I don't remember anything about the specifics of my childhood. I don't remember dates, years, none of that. All of that uh, is, has been wiped out. But the thing that I do remember is that when I would Every time I would leave home, when I would go, when I would get ready to go back home, I remember that there was a knot that was always in my stomach. My stomach was always balled up in knots. I never knew what I could expect. And so uh, I suffered from severe anxiety in those days. And, and uh, when, we would, when I would come home, my experience would be that uh, I would see 30 switches on the table. Uh, never knew if those were for me uh, were for my siblings to share in that, but uh, when my dad beat us, and that's literally what he did, uh, well, he beat us like the slave masters beat the slaves. That's, that was what was learned. He was only two generations from removed from slavery. And so we had to take off all of our clothes, and as a result of that, I had webs all over my body. I was always ashamed to go to PE and to bear because of the webs that I carried. At age 16, I left home because I had determined, predetermined that the next time my dad whipped me, I was going to kill him. And that is exactly what I had anticipated. I had a 6.35 Beretta, forgive the graphicness of what happened in my story, uh, and I was in, determined to put all 11 shots in his head. But I loved my mama, a sweet and beautiful woman who's loved the Lord and whose faith has shaped mine and saved me, literally. I've been saved by two women in my life. But, uh, and so then at age 16, rather than killing him, I left home and uh, never was on my own for all those. Went to the street of Detroit, became involved with the gang, begot, became the leader of the gang because you either eat or you are eating. And so I became one of the king of the beasts and survived the streets. Um, having gone into the military at age, uh, at age 20, that literally is the only reason why I'm alive today. No one got to be 21. In Detroit, we were, it was black on black crime, 300 unsolved murders a year. We were killing each other. Uh, none of my 13 gang members, 10 of them died at, uh, before they were 21. One made it to 23, and number 11 was my cousin who died of drug and alcohol abuse. His livers and kidneys literally gave out at age 50. I'm 68 and I'm still here alive. And so um, that, uh, that was the first uh, 
story of trauma. Um, sandwiched between the, the, that first story and the second story of trauma uh, is my beautiful bride, Glenda. I'll tell you about that in my conclusion. Second part of my traumatization, having begun ministry in 1970, um, I preached, I've been preaching now for 49 years, uh, but I had uh, conceptualized a, a ministry in my head I, to start a work in one of the cities in California. Those who know me know where it is. Uh, and uh, I uh, started with myself and my wife, and then I asked a, another man, an older preacher, and his wife to join us, and, and he became my assistant, my associate minister, and then with that beginning of four people in ministry, we started another church. Uh, nine and a half years later, we had grown to over 650 members, and we were baptizing many, many, and one of, one of the fastest growing churches in of Churches of Christ in, in, in America at that time. Um, and then in, uh, there was three, another major event in, uh, I confronted my dad about the abuse in 1973. And then uh, 12 years later in 1985, my dad came to California and begged my forgiveness, my healing. He gave me the blessing literally and my healing began uh, as a result of that in a serious way and so that was one thing but then in 1993 he died uh, and when he died uh, there was a severe hole in my heart uh, at that time and so but uh, then in 1995 in 1995 I, I um, after three years of telling my church that I really needed to do ministry they were a great church to do church to do fellowships great choir great participation, but not a church that wanted to do ministry. I needed to do ministry. And when I discovered that I could not lead my church to do ministry the way that I needed to do it, uh, I walked in in 1995 and resigned. Uh, and they told me I couldn't, it was my church. And I said, and if it's my church, it doesn't belong to Jesus. And I quit. Uh, that was the second event. However, they treated me scandalously. Uh, they treated me like I had stolen something. The people that I taught and baptized, it was the ultimate betrayal for me. Uh, at the same time, a perfect storm. My dad had died two years late before I was still processing that. I had this disorder that Uncle Sam gave me, blood, a blood disorder. They had determined they could cure the disorder and killed all of my white blood cells and sent me home to die. And therefore, being brokenhearted anyway, I was dying of a broken heart and I was physically dying then I went home to die. And uh, one day my wife walked up to me and on, on my deathbed and uh, essentially it's, what are you doing here? And it's like, uh, and I'm, I started to say I'm dying, but I didn't think that would be appropriate uh, at the time. And she looked at me so seriously and she said, you cannot die. She said, you cannot die, you have got to live. And, um, and so then um, I, she said, you gotta fight. I said, I am fighting, but literally I had basically given up. She said, you got to fight more. It's not fair for you to die. You cannot die and leave me here with these young, our young kids. You've got to fight. And I looked at that woman. I almost told a joke at that time. I almost said, watch me. But uh, I didn't think that would be appropriate. So therefore, I looked at her and I saw her resolve. And I said, okay. I, if she was convinced, then I was convinced. And I turned to the wall, literally, like, as Hezekiah did, and I asked God to give me 15 more years. You gave it to Hezekiah. I need more time. Uh, I later sent, went back and told God, I need you to revise that. If you want. <laughs> <laughs> more time than that. But, but literally uh, got off my deathbed, but, uh, but entered into my wilderness experience of three years. Three years, it was the time of of a faith crisis. I, I was angry with God. How could he? I had served you faithfully. I've done all that I could do. And I didn't mind you letting me, but you allowed my family to go through all of this. How could you do this? And I told God to his face, I will never preach again. And I fully expecting for him to strike me down because that's what our theology taught. I came to really know God during my wilderness experience. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I came to understand the tenderness and the mercy of God as he put his arms around me and as he nurtured me 
uh, back to health through my beautiful bride. And so that, uh, the thing that I um, get out of that reality uh, is that, is that there, there are several things that, that happened during that time uh, in terms of my study. I immersed myself in study. I've always been known as the five o'clock preacher. I would get up in the morning, five o'clock, study for four hours, go to my office, literally study until my wife would call me sometimes and say, honey, uh, come home. And I would say, oh, okay, and then I'd go home. Uh, and so uh, I studied vociferously. I only went out to personal friends, and I have a number who would call me, and those are the only people I did anything for. Uh, I was a hermit, a spiritual hermit, uh, connected, uh, went to worship, and then we started a downtown work uh, in Oakland, and that, that's a, that would take too much time for me to tell. But nevertheless, um, and so um, during that time, I, I really came to know him and the sovereignty of God, understanding his sovereignty and evil, and how does God allow evil to happen to good people? Job became a constant companion for me, and I began to really dig deep into what, and McGregan's book on God's sovereignty really helped me and blessed me, and I, and I never met him to tell him, uh, I've seen him and never got a chance to tell him that, uh, uh, that how much I appreciated that, but no, I, nevertheless, um, and so then I want to tell you then, uh, having told you all of that, I'm supposed to answer two questions for you. The first of which is, how did I get through the process? Uh, and the second of which is, what, what lessons have I learned from my story that could perhaps be beneficial to you? And so let me tell you how I got through the process. You see, sandwiched between those two major uh, <coughs> events of traumatization, uh, was 1993, on May the 11th, 1993, <coughs> at 3 p.m. I know because mine was the only wedding that started on time. It was Saturday, <laughs> on May uh, the 11th, 19, uh, 1974. Um, my bride walked down the aisle, and, I, and she married me at that time. And, and, so, and, so, and it's interesting because May the 11th, Saturday, May the 11th coming up, uh, will be our 45th wedding anniversary. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I praise God for that. But what happened with me and how did I make it through? Literally is that God had already provided for me uh, the one that would help, that he would use to lead me through this process. You know, when God created Adam, uh, we know that the Bible says that he kept saying after each creation, and it is good. But then he got to, the first time God said it is not good, was in reference to what man, to man. Not that man was not good, but it is not good that man should be alone, he says. And literally, he says, I'm going to make him a helper. Literally what he's saying in the Hebrew, he's saying, look, man is not going to make it by himself. I got to get him some help. That's literally what he's saying, brothers, I'm sorry. Uh, perhaps we could use some humility anyway. And if you really want to have humility, go back to what God said. He said, I got to get him some help, but it can't just be any help. It's got to be a helper like me, because that word for helper is only used of God. And I hate to bust your, uh, our chauvinistic bubble. It's a word that is only used for a superior helping one who is inferior. So swallow on that one, and we'll talk about it maybe some other day. Uh, but, but the reality is, is that, and that was, and so he had already provided for me my help. He gave me my woman. And what happened during my first healing of traumatization was that feeling unloved and feeling like uh, I, I was unlovable. When you are beat like that by your, your, your parent, you don't feel good about yourself at all. And so what happened with me was is that she gave me unconditional love. I, my mama loved me. I knew she did. But my mama could not love me the way this woman loved me. She loved me holistically. She loved me unconditionally. And I experienced God's love. And through her love for me, I began to love myself. The first thing she helped me to do is to become fully human. Because when you are come from the environment that I came from, when I met her, I never laughed. I never smiled about anything. Uh, when you're on the street, you don't have feelings. You can't have feelings. If you have feelings, they will sense it. You will die. I had no feelings. I virtually had none, and so my emotional uh, cords were very limited. 
anxiety I disguise with anger. And so therefore, I was either angry or not angry. When in react, anxiety is a secondary emotion, but nevertheless, we won't go into that. Anxiety, I mean, uh, anger is a secondary emotion, but we won't go into that. Anxiety uh, was masked with anger, and so therefore, she literally, in being with me, helped me to become, first of all, fully human and begin to feel as human beings feel. Because initially, even when she wanted to hold my hand, I, I didn't feel anything. I just did it because she said she wanted to do it. And uh, so becoming fully human, she, she helped me with that. I praise God for that. And then with my second uh, area of traumatization, if she had not been there, I would have died because she literally commanded me that I could not die. <laughs> and, uh, and I believed her. She seemed so convinced. I said, okay, literally, and determined to will to live. And so God sent my woman to me and she became the source of giving me the help. He's not gonna make it by himself. So I'm gonna get him a woman, someone suitable to him. And then finally, let me close with this, this, this point. When you talk about what lessons I've learned, trust God's sovereignty. Everything that happens to us, God didn't do it. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. But God didn't do it, but God permits it. His permissive will is that he permits this to happen. And when I came to grips with the fact that while he did not do it, he did permit it. And that when he permits it, he then has made a promise that he would literally work all things together for good. That is not for your good, that's to make you good. It's an adjective, not an adverb. And so therefore, he's made all things to make you good. Because God is in his, his celestial kitchen making a cake. And he's literally staring up all the events that have happened in your life. And God has got to serve that cake. And that cake cannot be bitter. Because nobody eats bitter cake. It's got to be sweet. And so everything that happens to you, he stirs it up. And then out of that, he then puts his divine sugar in it. And he makes you sweet and serves you. He's not giving you cake. You're the cake. <laughs> and therefore, he's making you better. And so I leave you with this story that talks about the sovereignty of God. I leave you with this song that talks about the sovereignty of God. And it talks about it eternally, but it, it kind of makes the point that I want to make. make. In... Many times we might grow weary, we might falter, stumble, and fall. In despair, we might feel. Forgotten feeling there is just no hope at all. I know sometimes Kenrith may leave you. Oh, death takes its toll throughout the years. But I know we shall find sweet consolation. And my Jesus will wipe away all our tears oh, oh, we may have we may have about some confusion oh, oh, we may have we may have our doubts and fears but if Oh!
And sometimes kindred may leave you. They may with scorn scandalize your name. In despair, you might feel so heavy laden. Feel your losses far exceed your gain. Friends, don't you worry, cause judgment is coming I can't say we but I'm told that it's need and I know we shall find sweet consolation that my dream us will wipe away all our tears. Oh, we may have, we may have our bouts of confusion. Oh, we may have, we may have our doubts and fears. But if we lean, lean upon Jesus, and I know, and he will wipe, he's gonna wipe away, away all our tears, away side of my brain aneurysm uh, surgery. Um, May 6th, which would be Monday, would be my fourth year anniversary since then. And um, uh, I have my book that tells that, that story, the previous story from the, from the time we've, we were in the doctor's office and they let me know um, that I had to have this surgery or basically it was 50-50. If I didn't do anything, if I did, it really was no promise either way of what would happen. And um, from that moment up until my 50, my 60th birthday, and that's how the, the book ends with that celebration. Um, but through the process, when I came home, I came home four days after the surgery, believe it or not. And they had shaved this side of my head. Uh, it was, they had to cut out a, literally a plug in my skull to go in because it was in between two veins. It was a very dangerous, um, position for it to be in. And so once I, I went home on Mother's Day and Marie was there, she, she came, she flew in from here. And I just felt like I was on a cloud because they had given me so much anesthesia and thank God I, didn't, I really didn't have any pain. Um, my main thing was just being on balance, having enough energy. And one of the things that happened is just being, just laying there flat on my back um, I had to just let it, let it be, not fight being on my back, because I really didn't have energy to fight back. It was just, okay, I'm here. And I would get up and go in the kitchen, and it would feel like I was just like, I don't know, it's like I was in another world. Um, I remember when uh, I first woke up, and I had this thing wrapped on my head, and I could hear people talking, it was, it was JC and my, one of my cousins, and I was thinking, 
well, I understand what they're saying. Because <laughs> I wasn't sure when I came up, was I going to be disoriented or, you know, or what? And I was like, hey, I understand the words they're saying. And then I kept telling my husband, give me some ice, but they wouldn't let me drink water at that time. And so eventually, he was taking too long after maybe four or five times, and I just grabbed it and got my own ice. <laughs> and then he said, look at my baby, getting her own ice. <laughs> and so um, the surgeon came in, and he was, he was so excited because it took longer than what he thought. Um, there was a whole incident prior to the surgery where literally I could have died with that. Um, but it, anyway, you know, the Lord saved me. But on the other side of it, I had started uh, learning this thing called Zentangle. And it's, it's, it's actually art, but it's just a very simple process of creating the, like the same figures over and over. And when you, it's like, you know how we have these adult coloring books? And when you color, it, it just make, helps you relax. And in creating these objects over and over again, it does the same thing. So I said, well, you know. They didn't tell me any therapy to do or if I need to go to, you know, whatever for, you know, my brain. I said, you know what, I'm going to try this because this is something that's supposed to be relaxing. So I started doing the Zentangle um, images, and uh, I'll, we'll get a chance to exper experiment with that in a few minutes. Um, and then from there grew this, this desire to create other things, so I started drawing. And one of the first things that happened was... Um, I have been reading about Zentangle, and one of the things that it, it has in the process is this mantra, there are no mistakes. And I kept saying, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, are there really? And I said, you know, I'm going to go with this. I'm going to go with it. So as I've created these images over and over, sometimes, you know, you have this inner critic telling you, oh, that looks terrible. You didn't do it right. Erase this. There's no erasing in Zentangle. Whatever you put down, it's there. And the whole idea is, let's say, for example, if you make a mark and the mark goes different than what you want, we will say that's a mistake. But what they do, is the husband and wife who created this concept, is that you just take that thing and make it into something else. Mm -hmm. And so as I started to internalize this idea, it reminded me of the scripture in Romans that all things work together for good. Mm -hmm. And the things that God allowed to happen in my life, including this surgery, it actually saved my life because... I found out um, through going to the emergency for something completely unrelated. Because people always say, well, did you have a headache? No, I didn't have headaches. I just, I went in for, um, I had been sick a month because I had like um, congestion and pollen and all this stuff in Texas at the time. And, um, and so they were doing, being very thorough and doing all of these neurological tests and that's how they found it. And so uh, through this process, I eventually created a whole bunch of images, and then I start, my brain started like getting hungry. It's like, I want to do more. And I remember that I had this, this poster that I had drawn an outline of a butterfly, but I, and I had it uh, at Staples. They blew it up to a three-foot by four-foot image. And um, I always thought it was just ugly because I wanted it to be a crisp uh, you know, thing so I could color it in. So I said, well, let me go find that thing. And it was rolled up in the corner. And I found it, rolled it out. And I just rubbed my hand across the whole page to, to just get a sense of changing what I was thinking about it as ugly and, and look at it not as a mistake. So they have these gray areas. And I'm going to show you this video. Uh, very short to just give you a little taste of this. I'm glad I, I videoed. I didn't know that they were going to be using this. Let me just see the process. This. Anyway, 
those were the things that I thought were ugly, those gray marks, mm -hmm. those gray scattered areas. And as I started, I just had regular crayons, and I just started blending the colors. You'll see my <coughs> this section is multiple colors. And I just, I said, you know, I'm just gonna look at this again. And then it also caused me later to reflect over my life, things that I thought were mistakes that I made, or maybe God made a mistake on some of those things, but it made me really reflect on with gratitude that I have been through and God saw me through everything I've been through to help me to um, just live right now and be grateful. And as I worked through this whole, it took me several days to color, it's kind of big, because I was getting tired kind of soon. I was still in recuperation at that time. Um, I'm just showing it's just simply crayons, nothing, nothing fancy, and color pencils, markers, nothing that anybody else couldn't just buy and do. And then I'll have the final shot of when I finished it. And then I put like some designs in there. And something that I thought was really ugly were those gray things right there, you see. And I just worked around it and blended everything in. And it became such a beautiful butterfly. I was uh, asking one of my neighbors, uh, a young lady who lived downstairs from us, and uh, one time to help me uh, get my, my living room in order because my mind just wasn't uh, connecting like how to put things to get them in order. So I said, well, she, her house is super in order, so I'll ask her. And so she gave me some ideas. And then she said, well, of course, put some of your art up. I still had it rolled up, even though I thought it was beautiful. I still didn't have it up. And I eventually did put it up. So this is just a part of what I did in my recovery. Um, and art has become super huge to me now. Now I'm gonna just scan down to the steel shots. And you can see this is how, this is how it actually, getting closer to being finished. I did them out of order. That's how it started, <laughs> that corner. And when you're doing it, you don't have to plan out of it. Like when you're doing things, like I, like I sometimes get stuck in my head thinking too much. Just go, let the colors call. That's pretty much, this right here is coloring. I don't see how it's coloring. Anyway, that's the butterfly story. And of course, as we know, the butterfly uh, has much of a, a story to tell us of metamorphosis of change, going from a caterpillar to chrysalis to the butterfly. And sometimes in that chrysalis point, when it's dark and things are unsure, the butterfly doesn't know because the butterfly's not born yet, but that whole thing has to be pretty scary in human terms. If you personify the butterfly, it must be pretty frightening and not to know what is really going on, what's next. And the next thing you know, the wings push and push and push, and through that pushing, it gains its strength to fly. And so through this whole process, um, I've shared my story, and I've um, also just opened up to a whole new world, just creating art. Ever since then, that's, that's, I do it just about every day. Uh, last year I did 300 days of art, just drawing, uh, painting, oil painting, watercolor, all kinds of things. It just opened up a whole new avenue of self-expression. So I have a sheet, I don't know how many of these I have, but I have, I want each of you to, let me see, one, two, three, just take one and pass it. I think you may have one. If not, just use the piece of paper you have. I just was trying to 
I thought these post-it notes would be good to kind of confine your um, images to a small space. The table starts off with a space of three and a half inches by three and a half inches. And I just want you to, my goal, my goal is for you to try to try to fill up this whole space with just one one type of image that you want to do. So I'll give you an example. Okay, you can just fill it up. Let's say this is one card. This is you can just choose which one you want to do. This is just the beginning. You can make it like this, or you can make it big, and then make some little small ones around it. It doesn't matter. Just fill up the whole thing with just circles. Just really simple. So you don't have to be an artist to do this. Okay. The next option you can do for those who want to get real adventurous, <coughs> you might just want to fill it with a simple flower, just a circle. And notice if your inner critic comes up and tells you you're not doing a good job, just say, okay, I'm just learning something, just experimenting. And then um, that's just what you can do. This is another one. You can do it your own way. This is just ideas. Just fill the whole thing up, the idea, just to get the sense of how you have to focus on what you're doing. And let's see another one. This is another one you can do. Two lines, dashes. Let's try one more down here. I hope you can see this one. If you can't, that's okay. Just use the ones on top. And you have several of these, so you can, you know, try something later. Okay, one line. <coughs> and then like these loops. And then a circle in each one. And then you can color in each circle. When you're coloring in things, it really helps you to just really focus your mind in. It's so it's, it's such a simple process, but it helps your mind to focus. Sometimes our minds get scattered, <coughs> and we get a whole bunch of things going through our heads. This really helps to, to calm down. It's really simple. Okay. And the purpose of this exercise. And the like purpose of the exercise is to is to is to get centered, to calm down. It helps us to relax. Mm -hmm. um, you can just do simple things like a whole sheet of this, or a sheet of zigzag. Just the whole thing, four or five times down the whole thing to the page is full, loop. Just do it over and over. I think it's the repetition that helps soothe us. You can do little hearts all over the whole thing. And I'll, I'll leave it with that. So what I want you all to do is just do that. And I'm going to read. I'm going to read scripture while you do that. Anybody have a question before you start? The meaning of this again? The, the meaning, meaning the is meaning is just, the meaning is just focusing and relaxing. And that God... Uh, well, yeah. The spiritual meaning was that God. I haven't got to that part. Yet. Okay, you have. Okay, so I'm going to read this scripture while you do this, and this can be meditative. So if you have something where uh, you can have audio Bible, or if you have your, like on my particular app, it can read the scripture. It's relaxing and also reinforcing the scripture, which I'm going to read to help us to understand God's sovereignty. We can relax because God is overall. And this is just an uh, external way of getting that process of calming the inner. Okay, so Romans 8, 24 through 37. And then I'll be done. Okay.
Okay, you can start filling your sheets. Ever since God saved us, we have continued to wait for this to happen. One day we will receive what we have hoped for. Then we will not need to hope for it anymore. Nobody continues to hope for something that he has already. But we continue to hope for what we do not yet see. And so we wait for it patiently. God's spirit also helps us to do this because we are weak. We do not know how we ought to pray, but God's spirit himself prays for us. He cries out to God on our behalf in a way that no one can say with words. God sees deep inside us and he knows our thoughts. He understands what's in our minds and what's in the mind of his spirit. When the Holy Spirit prays on behalf of God's people, he prays as God wants him to pray. We know that God works to help people who love him. He uses everything that happens to them to bring something good. He does this for those people that he has chosen to serve him. God already has those people in his thoughts from the beginning. He decided that they should become like his son. So then his son would have many younger brothers and sisters. God had already chosen those people to be his children. Because of that, he called them to come to him. He accepted these people as right unto himself. And those that he accepted, he caused them to become great. So because of all these things God does for us, we can say then, if God is working on our behalf, nobody can really do anything against us. God did not even keep his own son safe. Indeed, he gave his son to die on our behalf. So sincerely, God will continue to be kind to us as well as his son. He will give to us all things. Nobody can say that God's people are guilty. God himself has accepted us as right with him. So no one can say that God shall, shall still punish us. Nobody can say that because Christ Jesus himself died on our behalf. Christ raised, and he, get, he gave him life again as he was raised after his death. Now Christ is sitting on God's right hand in heaven. He himself is praying to God on our behalf. Christ will always continue to love us. Nothing can stop that. We may have troubles, things that make us sad or afraid. People may do bad things to us. We may have no food and no clothes. There will be, there may be great danger. People may even try to kill us. But none of us can stop Christ from loving us. As the Bible, as it says in the Bible, it's quoted from the Old Testament. Because we are your people, God's people try to kill us all the time. They think that we are like sheep, but we are ready to be killed. Because God loves us, none of our, these troubles can ever beat us. He makes us win against them. I am sure of this. Nothing can stop God from loving us. Death cannot do that. Life cannot do that. Angels cannot do that. Nor can demons do that. Nothing that happens to us now or that will happen in the future time can do that. No powerful spirits can do that. Nothing in high, nothing that is low in this world, nor anything that is deep down below the ground. Nothing else in the whole universe can stop God from loving us. Because of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know how much God loves us. One of my takeaways from my experience is that something really beautiful did come out of something that was so challenging and that God is, like JC was saying, use the word sovereign, God is sovereign. He knew I was going to go through that and through it all, something really beautiful has come out of that. And what I would like to share with each one of you, um, I think I have about 50 of these to just pass these out. I don't have to talk about this. We just pass these out. So just pass it all around to everybody gets one. You can pick anyone you want. These are different pieces of art that I've done. 
just take one pass of it. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So my name is Marie Thomas. Um, I worked here at Pepperdine for three years. I was the assistant director of intercultural affairs and I also worked as a resident director. I started the Pepperdine step team and this was just a real place of just so much joy for me. Um, so I'm gonna share a story that to me still is very drastic in my own mind even though I was the one, the main character of the story. <laughs> So I, was, I worked here at Pepperdine from 2009 to 2012. After that, I left here to move to Santa Barbara to pursue a second master's in education. I had been doing missionary work in Honduras for two, I was there for two years. Um, and Angel is from Honduras, he's here. Uh, I was there for two years and to support myself, I taught as a teacher. Then I did missionary work at a Church of Christ in a small Afro-Honduran village. And that experience drastically changed my life. So when I came back, this is before I came to Pepperdine, um, I just wasn't the same. I had, I've always loved children, but I just developed so much more of a passion to work with children. So that led to my pursuit um, of getting a master's degree in education with a teaching credential. So that was at the time that I departed here in 2012 and headed off to my dream of just becoming more deeply focused on my passion because um, I just feel like God was calling me to teach children and to nurture children because I'm a, I'm a developer. I love to nurture people. Personal development is really my thing. So um, during my time there, um, things were going pretty well. I was excelling academically. I, had, I was on a fellowship. But one month before it was time for me to graduate, my life drastically changed in a way that took several years to be able to regroup from. It, it, I was, um, you know, my faith was challenged. My finances were challenged. My upward mobility was challenged. My ability to complete my academics was challenged. My career was challenged. Everything was challenged. And I was completely lost. <laughs> I'm typically a person that has been pretty sure about myself, sure about what direction that I'm going in, and so to be completely unsure, I had God at this, God was my everything. All the decisions that I made, I would think, how can I please God? Um, but through that process, I ended up having a faith crisis and I lost my faith. There were a couple of months there to where I, I was so distraught that it was hard for me to believe in God at all. And being so sure about my faith, that was the one thing I was always sure about when everything else seemed uncertain. To lose that was devastating. Um, so let me share with you what led up to this and then share with you how losing my faith turned out to be the thing that strengthened my faith in a way that I could have never imagined. So I was a graduate student um, at UCSB. That was my, the school that I always wanted to go to. And I, I, in faith, I just applied to one school. I don't recommend that. But that's what I do. <laughs> and by the grace of God, I got into that one school that I applied for. So um, I was excelling, but you know, the, the program was rigorous. And um, I was doing great at 4.0, you know, up until that point. Um, but then things started to happen. I start to, to feel different. But for a while before going to UCSB, I felt like I was on like a spiritual high. You know, I felt like I was on a spiritual high. I just felt like I was just so in tune with God. And I was feeling like I was seeing signs. You know, I was having dreams and different things like that. And I was attributing all of this to, it's not to say that you can't, dream or dream that's of God, I'm not saying that. But I was attributing so many things to God is leading me in a certain direction. So one morning I woke up and I heard what I thought was the voice of God. It was an audible voice. And I had never 
had any kind of mental health issues in the past. So I'm thinking, I've been on a spiritual high now. I think God is just getting even closer to me. And now he's actually speaking to me directly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. But really, it was the onset of a mental health crisis. And I, I did not know that. So I was hearing, and the thing that's so interesting about like if you have a hallucination um, is that many times you might picture that as like being gibberish, but hallucinations can be very, um, it's almost like a, a normal conversation. So it seems like certain things are making sense. So the nature of mental illness though is that you don't know that you're, <laughs> that's the nature of it. So if you're delusional, it's because you believe that the hallucination is real. And that's a part of how people kind of get trapped in that space of not really realizing that they need, that they need help. Because a part of it is believing the story. So what's happened is that there's a narrative that's starting to be created with me and these imaginary people in my head and God and these other characters. Um, and so this story, of course, is completely detached from reality. So you can imagine how your interactions in the real world would be if you have a narrative that's detached from reality that's going on in your head. So what that causes you to do is the way that you relate to people is very bizarre. You know, I, w I was acting in ways that was very bizarre. Um, my parents interacted with me during that time. I was very paranoid. My parents actually heard, we had a conversation on the phone and I was hearing this narrative while I was talking on the phone. The narrative was louder than their voice. So I was responding to the narrative. So they knew something was wrong. So days later, they show up on my doorstep while I'm in grad school and they're like in Texas. And I'm like, mom and daddy, what are you doing here? And I have no idea that there's anything wrong. I'm just thinking, oh, this is some new thing. Um, and so they were trying to help me, but I wasn't, when you become, what happened is that when you're, um, I was having just a lot of stress, just e extreme stress. And what happens is that um, when you have an over a buildup of dopamine in your brain, it can cause hallucinations. And so that's what was happening. Um, and so they were trying to help me, but I just wasn't, um, I wasn't giving into it. I was ter I was actually scared of them. I was running from them, you know? So can you imagine, I've always had a great relationship with my parents. Honestly, with my mom and I, we've never had an argument, believe it or not. We've never had an argument. My dad and I are more similar, so we've had arguments at times, but my parents are some of my best friends in the world. So can you imagine going through that? So my interactions with other people were weird and through that process I harassed someone and what that led up to me being is arrested right <laughs> so I've always been a goody two-shoes <laughs> I was the the teacher's pet the um, the one child. that was the obedient child that rarely got in trouble so getting in trouble was just something that was hard for me to fathom let alone getting in trouble with the law I, I wasn't devastated because I wasn't well. So I thought, I literally thought I was suffering for the cause of Christ. I was like someone, I'm like on a mission to spread the gospel and someone's trying to stop me. I don't know if you've ever seen a person that's mentally ill, um, but they many times feel like they're on a mission mm -hmm. and that the people around them are trying to stop them from doing this thing. And so they have to just do, especially if they feel like they're hearing from God, because if you're religious, then that kind of thinking that it's God can kind of just kick yeah. into gear. So that's what was happening. I ended up getting arrested. And so I'm in jail. Um, I have, I don't really know what I'm doing there. Um, I, I'm like, I didn't do anything. I was confused because um, I don't really remember everything that happened. Um, so I, I got arrested. They put me in Santa Barbara County Jail. Then they took me to LA County Jail because the harassment happened in LA. So I was incarcerated for a calendar year. <laughs> I was in jail for a year. And the thing about it is that the going to jail was another trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I was also in isolation for a, for a long time just because of my behavior. 
Because while I was in there, I think the reason why, first of all, the time went by faster is because I still had this narrative going. But because of that trauma, I wasn't around anyone that I knew. So the, the narrative just kept continuing. There was no opportunity for me to come to myself. And they, I wasn't getting any treatment. <clears throat> there was no treatment, you know. Um, and so my parents would come to visit me, but that just wasn't enough. I was just still trapped in my own head. Um, so pretty much, um, yeah, during that time, it was almost like, if I don't know if you've seen A Beautiful Mind. It was like a beautiful mind experience where he's in a whole world, and then one day he realizes that it's all not true, that it was all in his head. So it was that kind of thing. So the whole time, I didn't know. I was still in this narrative um, the whole time. It was almost like sleepwalking. It's like you, you have done um, certain things, but you're not in the driver's seat. So you're not choosing. So what that ended up leaving me with is a criminal record. I had been in higher education. So you can't be in higher education with a criminal record. So I went through the process. I got my record expunged through the pro it was a long process um, because really they um, they gave me the highest they didn't take under consideration that I was mentally ill I didn't do anything to someone physically and I wasn't even face to face with the person it was more so harassing somebody like um, in private messages than social media but they still gave me the highest punishment so it was like I guess that would have been four years in prison was what they were giving me so time served one year got out three-year probation so um, it was a process it was when I got out and my dad came to pick me up that I realized it wasn't until then that I got out and I was around someone that loved me that I realized that I had had a mental health crisis and literally I wasn't on medication and the voices went away. They went away. I did end up having to see a therapist because after that, I was depressed. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, I was being on that trip and then realizing I had gotten into trouble and all these things and how I had affected someone or made them not feel safe. I was devastated by that. Um, but I was able to rebuild. But because I was so overwhelmed, I lost my faith during that time after getting out and trying to rebuild my life. But what happened was that I was still seeking. I was still seeking um, God. And I, I missed that feeling of having God at the center of my life. And so I remember one time I was taking a personal retreat and um, I was listening to an audio book called The Power of Now. And it was talking about like how stillness can really help you to connect spiritually. And it got to the chapter where it was talking about God. And it talked about how all love is the love of God. And literally it hit me almost like a bolt of lightning, perfect peace that I had never experienced before. That I feel like would have never been possible without this trauma that I had gone to. And that was the beginning of my journey. It was basically that scripture about be still and know that I am God. All It was almost like God just, it wasn't an audible voice. It was just like, I am. That scripture that said, I am that I am. And I realized that God was real and that he was there the whole time. It's just that we're not guaranteed to have a perfect life and when we are angered by trauma, we're basically saying that the default is that we think we're going to have a perfect life. But sometimes going, going through struggle is the thing where God can do his work. I was able to become more humble, less judgmental, be able to connect with people that have had mental health issues. I was able to basically, parts of my personality were able to, that were no longer serving me, were able to be wiped away during that process. So really I became more refined, a refining fire. And it was just, God gave me beauty for my ashes. And this woman right here is the woman that, um, when I came out of jail, my parents were out of state. So I came to stay with her. Yes. She's a woman of God. Yes. She's a herbalist. She's yes. a healer. Yes. And she, I stayed with her for two weeks and she worked on 
the healing process. Yes. She was the first person to nurture me and to start that healing process by the grace of God. And so whenever I see her, I'm just so grateful for what God had done. Yes. And so Thank the moral you. of this in conclusion is no matter how drastic your story is, don't be ashamed of your story. Yes. Yes. Because it is, that is what makes you beautiful. Yes. It's just, there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's just, just the fear of mental health issues are so um, stigmatized, but yeah. I'm not ashamed of my story yeah. because the gift that it gave me, I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm -hmm. If I could go back and erase that thing that happened to me, I simply wouldn't. So I have been restored. Um, I, my credential, my teacher credential has been restored. My record has been cleared. And UCSB has cleared me to come back and finish my degree January. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.